born into a Methodist family. I'm a cradle Methodist and someday I'll be a grave Methodist, I suppose. My mom says my first two words were John Wesley. I'm kind of doubting that. But anyway, I've been in the Methodist church all my life. And yet, when I was finishing up at Carolina, back at the dawn of time when the earth was still cooling, by which I mean 1974, which is BC, before cell phone, I went to Gordon-Conwell Seminary. Now, Gordon-Conwell Seminary is an evangelical seminary in New England. It's not aligned with a particular denomination. Largely a reformed seminary. The whole theology department was reformed. So I was reading things like Calvin's Institutes and Burkauer and Burkoff and Van Til and Hodge and Warfield and all these dudes, right? And as a Methodist, I found this all very interesting. I mean, I had some of the faculty coming to me in the library and saying, now, Ben, we're praying for you that you're going to get those five points of Calvinism, you know. The thing is, the more I read of Calvin and those folks, the more I realized why exactly I was a Wesleyan person. I really didn't believe that before the foundations of the world, God had chosen some to be saved and others to be eternally lost. I really didn't believe that when the Bible commands love, it means God is making us an offer you can't refuse. I really didn't think that the character of God at the end of the day was well represented with a theology that suggests that before anyone was ever created, God decided that some were going to be eternally lost and burned forever. For me, that theology didn't match up with the increasing amount of information I got from detailed study of the Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek in the Bible about the character of God. Let's think about this for a minute. In the New Testament, there are only three nouns used of God. God is love, God is life, and God is light, the three L's. Everything else is an adjective. God is righteous, adjective. God is holy, adjective. God is sovereign, adjective. I mean, we could keep going down that road. But it's got to be significant that when we're talking about God and using another noun in an intransitive sentence, it's love, light, and life. Now, my understanding of love is it's got to be freely received and freely given. If that is the heart of the gospel, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, then that has got to be freely received from God and freely returned. And for me, that's the heart of the matter. Never mind the exegesis of little things. For example, how many people did Jesus die for? Well, 1 Timothy 2 is perfectly clear. He died as a ransom for all, and all means, wait for it, all. He didn't just die for some, he died for all. Now, why would God, in a really inefficient manner, send his son to die for some, when in fact, his death atoned for the sins of all? Um, it didn't make any sense. So, when I read texts like Mark 10:45, which says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for the many, it occurred to me that the contrast is between the one who died and the many, which is everybody else, who are ransomed. One versus many, not many versus all. Long story short, I found that the five points of TULIP were basically wrong. What's TULIP? Total depravity. Um, not if you believe in prevenient grace that gives everybody the opportunity to respond to the grace of God. 
Unconditional election. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that Israel is the elect people of God and those who are in Christ are the elect people of God. And in regard to individuals, you can either be in or out, depending on what point in time we're talking about. So conditional election. Limited atonement. Okay, yes, it's limited, but who limits it? Is it God before the foundation of the world? Or is it our response that decides whether we get a benefit from the atonement or not? Um, irresistible grace. Nope. That would be God giving us, making us an offer we can't refuse. Grace is resistible. And finally, perseverance of the saints. I like to put it this way. You're not eternally secure till you're securely in eternity. The New Testament is replete with texts that talk about those who have made shipwreck of their faith. And our, as our forebear John Wesley said, you can't make shipwreck of something you never had in the first place. If you ain't sailing on the boat, you can't shipwreck the boat. The truth of the matter is that there are texts about committing apostasy. And apostasy is a willful rebellion against the faith that you have had and did trust God with. So, those five points of Calvinism don't really summarize exegetically or theologically the character of God, the nature of salvation, or the way we should approach these issues. So at the end of the day, I graduated from Gordon-Conwell. I was very thankful for all I learned about the Reformed faith and became convinced more than ever, now I know, by God predestined me to be a Methodist.